Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Then we'll start off for real. Our first question, uh, just briefly, who are you? Well, as I said, my name is Chad Myers, and I live in the Ventura River watershed of Southern California. That is about an hour's drive north of the Los Angeles metropolis. Uh, here, I live in a small intentional community, uh, and we run a small nonprofit organization that does organizing, advocacy, and education around a broad spectrum of issues of faith and justice. Um, we have a small permaculture demonstration project, um, and we host groups here, uh, and we also travel and, and work with groups around North America and occasionally abroad. Uh, so I, I've been to Sweden maybe three times in the past uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, mostly working with uh, an organization called Diakonia, who I think some of your listeners will know. Uh, and maybe five years ago was the most recent time that I was there. I am a fifth-generation Californian. I was theologically educated um, in the field of New Testament studies, um, but most of my work career has been as an activist, as an organizer. So I worked with the Quakers, an organization called the American Friends Service Committee, and I also worked for many years with indigenous peoples movements throughout the Pacific Basin. Uh, more, more recently, I have uh, worked quite a bit on issues of climate crisis and all of the related social and ecological issues. Can I ask a follow-up question? Listen. Sure. Because I'm a bit curious, what do you mean by, when you say that you're working as an organizer, this term, I've heard it several times, but I never got it explained. Well, it's probably what you would call an activist. We use the term organizing here because it uh, connotes the process of advocating and ed educating to build social power to change certain things. Uh, so we, we do organizing around food justice, around immigrant rights, around uh, ecological sustainability. Those, those, those would be the three key areas, but we also do work around labor justice. My wife is a restorative justice practitioner, so we do engage issues of restorative justice, particularly as they have to do with um, healing the wounds of deep historical violations. We're quite involved in, in racial justice education and organizing. So yeah, so so we, we primarily engage people in the faith communities, but uh, we also do public organizing uh, as well. Maybe it's or maybe organizer is is a better word than activist. I mean, it's more specific. I don't know if, how it is for you, but in here in Sweden, sometimes activist is a word that is a little bit watered out. Everybody mm -hmm. calls themselves an activist, and all they do is you know I don't share things on internet. Organizer is really more specific. Yes. Yeah, we tend to use those terms interchangeably here. We have heard uh, some rumors about you uh, being a kind of anarchist theologist. Uh, why would you think the, that would be? Uh, why are you called this? Well, I uh, am not normally called that, but I suppose I answer to that call. I don't really call myself an anarchist theologian. I would call myself a theologian who is also an anarchist in in my leanings. But I'm really not a professional theologian either. I don't teach at a university. Um, I tend to work more at the popular level. I have followed the, the path of popular education, of putting my services at, at the work of um, building social movements. So most of the theological education I do is uh, with uh, activist groups and organizations who are working for social change and one way or another. Again, most of them 
faith-rooted, but not always. My theological career is probably mostly known through my writing, which I have done as my own discipline of trying to figure things out, trying to reflect critically on, on practice. I guess I've gotten the reputation because so few Christian theologians bother with having conversation with the anarchist tradition. And so there's, there's just a few of us out there, and I suppose uh, that's why I've been labeled as as one of them. I, I was an early advocate, or at least I early on I expressed my interest in the emerging anarcho-primitivist um, theory back in the 1990s and uh, did some writing on that, and that was picked up on by some people who adopted me as an anarcho-primitivist theologian. Um, but that, that really is not a label that I would use of myself. I've uh, subsequently found it necessary to be somewhat critical of anarcho-primitivists uh, who can't seem to really figure out what their practice is. They're, they're long on critical theory and short on practice. Um, but that's, that's another issue that we might want to take up later. So unfortunately, the Christian tradition theologically has only rarely engaged the anar anarchist tradition. But there is a thin strand of, of that conversation which... Um, I have always been interested in and continue to be committed to. So I guess that's what has earned me that reputation in some circles. In your introduction, you uh, mentioned some of the work that you are doing and also Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. But we were a bit curious about the issues on which you chose to focus. How did you happen to choose those issues? Uh, what were the criteria, so to say? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think how any of us come to our commitments is uh, often not a linear process. I think we are influenced by other people, particularly by mentors. So that would have been particularly true for me. I actually got into social change work, working with the disability rights movement back in the early 70s, 1970s. Disability rights movement was actually birthed in the place that I was living in and attending university at the time, up in Northern California in Berkeley. And there I was working as an attendant for physically disabled people and was swept up in, in that movement of, in as it was called, independent living movement and actually visited an independent living center in Sweden in 1974, I think it was, or 75. After that, I met the Catholic Worker Movement, which was my first introduction to anarchism, Christian anarchism. And through the Catholic Worker Movement was introduced to the Radical Peace Movement. This was at the tail end of the Vietnam War era in the United States. For, for the next five years, I was very deeply involved in trying to name and resist uh, nuclear weaponry as the great as the big sword of empire. In 1980, I attended a conference that was put on by indigenous people throughout the Pacific Basin, Asia and the Pacific. And at that conference, that was a real turning point for me, a real conversion moment, because I met and heard indigenous people say, you know, you Westerners, you uh, North Atlantic anti-nuclear activists, you you talk about what might happen if these weapons are ever used. And so you're organizing against the threat of potential nuclear war. But you need to understand that the great powers are already fighting their wars on our land. They are digging uranium on our land. They are um, putting forward military bases on our land. They're dumping nuclear waste on our land. They're testing weapons on our land which means that before nuclear war ever happens, we are already the primary victims of what we call clear uh, imperialism. And so when, when are you first world activists going to realize that the war is already happening on people of color? And that, that, was, a, that was a real challenge to me. And at that point, I, I, really, um, I was persuaded that they were correct in their uh, analysis and experience. So really shifted over to uh, working around issues of indigenous solidarity throughout the Asia-Pacific region, including here in the U.S., and did that through the, through the better part of the 1980s. And that was a very influential and profound experience for me in which I learned a great deal about colonialism, about white supremacy, about what it means to work with people who, by and large, continue to be ignored 
by great political movements. And then I had a sort of another conversion uh, some 10 years later in which I realized I was a lot of my focus was international and I wasn't paying enough attention to the issues close at hand. And so then I went sort of switched my direction again and went into 10 years of organizing intensively at the local level in which I was dealing with issues of racism, poverty, um, immigrant rights, fair housing, gangs, all of these sorts of uh, typical urban issues in the greater Los Angeles area. And I was very deeply impacted in 1992 by the urban uprising in Los Angeles in uh, April, end of April 1992, which was the largest civil disturbance in the history of the United States, uh, in which more than 50 people were killed and a billion dollars worth of damage was done, and Los Angeles was essentially on fire for three days. Um, this was likely prior to you all being born, I would think. Um, but it was a huge uh, issue for us uh, in terms of realizing the long-term consequences of social and racial disparity and inequity. Um, Is this comparable to uh, the Hurricane Katrina? Well, it, it you know it was comparable in the sense that her that, that Katrina was both a natural disaster and a social disaster in which the, the lines of race and poverty really determined who survived and, and who got the attention of the authorities. In Los Angeles, this was a, a perfectly social disaster, but again, yes, very much along the lines of race and class. So that, that further influenced my, my understanding as, as an organizer and an activist. Um, and at each level, this wasn't about rejecting previous work. It was about trying to go deeper and in integrating all of these things in in one's understanding of what's wrong and how to address it. In the last in in the late 1990s I then began to focus more intently on trying to mobilize faith communities to plug into a variety of issues and that's that's been my focus really for the last 20 years uh, we are 20 years old this this year as a small organization and so our work is basically looking at the entire range of justice and peace concerns and issues and trying to figure out how to mobilize people and resources in faith communities to address them. Uh, and that goes along like with uh, our next question because we were thinking about uh, how the connection is between uh, these is issues that you worked with 20 years and, and what kind of Christian practices that could be connected to those issues. Uh, if we can talk a little bit about practical consequences of this uh, ideologies or struggles. For me, it's always been, you know, I was I was not raised in the church. I was a young adult convert. So maybe I didn't have a lot of the tapes playing in my head about what could and couldn't be Christian faith. But it seemed to me that it, it was perfectly logical for followers of Jesus to care about poverty and to care about discrimination and to care about the earth and to care about compassion and justice. And it it's always been confusing to me why it's so difficult for the Christian church to mobilize itself around those things. So our work focuses on, first of all, trying to help Christians reread their tradition, particularly scripture, but also church history, to reread that tradition through the lens of popular struggles for, for justice and equity, and to find those parts of the Christian tradition which have always been concerned about these things and and to try to move those parts of the tradition from the margins to the center of our understanding of faith to reread the bible through through that same lens and then to to work on mobilizing so we have worked very specifically uh, around questions of economics, around questions of nonviolence, around what Martin Luther King Jr. famously called the giant triplets of American pathology, namely militarism, racism, and poverty, and to build capacity around, around those things. We like to work in a way that's integral of the personal and the political, so we, we talk to people about lifestyle and about personal convictions, and then we also talk to them about social movements and, and political um, ramifications of certain issues. So we have done um, quite a bit of education about Christian complicity. That is, if churches do nothing, what are they already supporting, and how, how can they disengage 
from supporting oppression uh, and engage with working for solidarity and liberation. And that, you know, that runs across a wide spectrum of issues. And we, we work on some local initiatives and demonstration projects. We work on uh, thematic issues such as immigrant rights. Um, what does that mean personally and politically? What does solidarity with indigenous people mean today? What does it mean for how we handle our, our resources and our money? What does it mean for how we live our material lives? Uh, what does it mean for our political engagements in the public sphere? What does it mean for how, how we project our, our, our faith into the public square? These are all questions that we try to engage folk with and, and engage ourselves with. I think it's a really challenging perspective uh, why the church has such a hard time to to deal with these more practical questions and, and practical consequences of having a faith. We wanted to move on a bit, maybe a bit more in a theoretical direction, because one of the questions that we wanted to raise is that as anarchists, one challenging question or issue with Christianity is, in a sense, being limited by the rules or the idea of God's authority. How would you look on on uh, this perspective or this issue? Does God limit our freedom? Well, of course, that's an issue that is a thorny one for a lot of ideological anarchists. And, and I always try to remind anarchists that... Um, the word anarchism means without rulers. It doesn't mean without rules. Um, that is to say, we all we all live by rules, and whether that the whether that's the rules of a game um, or the rules of uh, uh, certain social conventions. When we speak language, we're playing by rules, rules of syntax and, and rules of vocabulary. So hu- human beings organize themselves according to these sorts of conventions, whether they're formal or informal. Um, so I, I, I think anarchists who think the tradition is about not having rules is a very immature grasp of, of anarchism. I think um, anarchism is about resisting rulership. Um, that is the, the top-down domineering form of the exercise of power. So once once we can clarify that question, then then we can have a, a meaningful conversation about well, what are the rules we live by? That is to say, what are the practices? What are the conventions? What are the covenants that we live by? Uh, so in the in the Christian tradition, we tend to speak more in terms of covenant than rules. A covenant is something that one voluntarily embraces. That is about living in a way that that maximizes the well-being of one's neighbor and one's community of the earth and those covenants are are something that one voluntarily embraces uh it's not something that is imposed and and that tradition runs very deeply in in the scriptures um that people are invited to make a covenant once one makes a covenant, then one does live within the bounds of that covenant. One agrees to do certain things. One agrees not to do certain things. Uh, and those are all things that are for the benefit of the community. Any anarchists who have actually tried to, say, live in community or organize a social movement or, or do a project um, know that at some point one has to make a decision about what one is going to do and not do and why. And we don't we don't have to call those rules, but... That's essentially what they are. Again, I, I prefer the term covenant. I, I am not a libertarian anarchist. Um, I think the, the strain of libertarianism, which is nobody can tell me what to do, is sort of the ultimate expression of modernist entitlement. Uh, so I, I try to steer away from that. But the question of how we make covenants and, most importantly, how we um, manage covenants or how we enforce covenants. That's a, that's a big question for anarchists. And it's also a big question for Christians. Um, what do we do when someone breaks covenant? Um, who has, who has the power, if, if anyone, to enforce a, a covenantal agreement? In the Christian nonviolent tradition, that's, that's a difficult question because if we don't rely on the state or or upon church authorities in a hierarchical sense, then how does the community itself uh, respond when when people violate, uh, when people break covenant? 
so those are those are very real questions and they're difficult questions, but they're not questions that Christians uh, have and anarchists don't have. Uh, anarchists have to face those those same questions. How do you uh, how does one organize a community apart from coercive authority? Uh, that's a question. Uh, that nonviolent Christian communities also have to uh, answer. The, the question of, of authority um, is one that is, again, often misunderstood because it's usually equated with hierarchical power, um, hierarchical ability to enforce. The, the, the word authority in, in the Bible is the same word as power. So one has many forms of power. And not all power is dominating power. There's the power of love. There's the power of solidarity. There's the power of um, mutual aid. Uh, there's the power of fidelity. All of those are forms of, of power in the Greek exousia, authority. So in the Jesus story, Jesus comes having great power, and his power is threatening to the authorities. Um, again, that's a play on words. So it's a, it's a question of what kind of power we we exercise, and uh, I would say that both anarchists and Christians uh, are attempting to exercise power in a way that is humanizing and redemptive and healing, and that's why we end up resisting other forms of power that are harmful and dominating. You know, I'm I'm very well of the no lords, no masters, no gods slogan of anarchism, and I understand where that comes from and why. It's a particular um, artifact of late 19th century ideological reasoning. But the question is, um, can we move beyond slogans and re-engage these questions? Is it possible to have an idea of God that recognizes divine authority but rejects authoritarianism? And I would, I would say, yes, I think that is possible. In the same way, in life, uh, I don't know if you have this experience, but we have this experience very much in which there are certain elders in our community, people who have been in the movement for a long time and have lived exemplary lives and who have a certain political authority and spiritual authority and personal authority. Um, those are people who I respect and I defer to in terms of listening to their wisdom and taking cues from them and often taking guidance from them. They have, in that sense, they have authority with me. Um, but that's not an authority that they impose upon me. That's an authority that they have earned and that I have given them. Uh, I think in organic communities, that's how true authority is supposed to work. Obviously, in the case of the state, that's, that's a totally different ballgame that Authority is not earned, it's imposed. Uh, so I, I just think we, it's important that we, that we clarify these, these terms. Uh, and so in the same way that I would respect or acknowledge the authority of elders in my community, um, I can use that by analogy to understand the idea of the authority of, of God as, as the greatest elder, if you will. Not sure if any of this is making sense to you. Oh, it is making sense. And I think you clarified a lot of different perspectives and maybe misunderstandings about the terms. But I think I, I, I will linger a little bit longer about the language used around God as you speak of, because I think it's um, if one is about uh, or have an anarchistic theology, it's it's logical to undergo the authority of God in the way that you just uh, presented as an elder that you can listen to because of its uh, experience and therefore you should listen and do something with that information but we i think there is still something how can we deal with the the idea of God as as lord or master this mm-hmm. sort of imperial terms and um, because when i Uh, when I started to call myself an anarchist a couple of years ago, these issues became something that I thought a lot about. And I know mm-hmm. that in in your theology, uh, you often speak of how Jesus come with a real sort of political alternative and uh, trading the tyranny of Caesar with uh, the kingdom of God. But uh, still, what do we make of this? Uh, I mean, there is a 
supremacy or sovereign of God also? Isn't that oppressive? Should we rebel against God? And or what should we do about this comparisons with kings? Yeah, language matters. And semantics oftentimes are a barrier and we get stuck in, in semantics. And yet language does matter. So the the conundrum that we have in Christian anarchism is that in the early Jesus movement, a decision was made to engage the political world of Caesar by engaging Caesar's language. Um, and the way that that was done was in a world in which lordship language, master language, was very specifically political and economic, meaning Caesar was understood to be curios, lord of the world, and masters were understood to be large landowners and the rich and the elites. Uh, these were, in other words, these were technical terms in the first century of the social landscape that the early Christian movement is uh, living on and engaging. And so they decide to say, well, actually, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was a, a tactical decision to subvert the language of lordship by saying this one who precisely rejects the sword, this one who comes riding on a donkey, not on a militaristic horse, this one who gives his life rather than taking life, uh, this one who stands with the poor as opposed to with the rich, this one is actually Lord. That was a polemical, subversive rhetorical strategy of the early movement. This, this one who frees slaves is the true master. This one who redistributes wealth is the true master. This one who gives priority to the poor is the true master. Not the master of the great household, not the absentee landlord. In, in that social world, this was a way of engaging. Uh, so a young Christian anarchist colleague here in, in the U.S., Shane Claiborne, whose work you may be familiar with, wrote a book a while ago called Jesus for President. And he was attempting to use the same rhetorical strategy. Now, that is a strategy actually that anarchists use all the time whenever they engage politically. They will subvert, they will engage political discourse in a way, for example, that says people have the power or um, we will we will occupy this space. The Occupy movement is a good case in point. I know it, it had some impact in Sweden seven or eight years ago. At its height, the Occupy movement was an attempt to take over public space. It's kind of the politics of spectacle. But by calling themselves Occupy, that actually was a term that was didn't communicate to everybody. It certainly didn't communicate to Palestinians who live under occupation. Uh, and so it's difficult to find political language that subverts the dominant rhetoric in order to break open space to rethink this. So we, we have this language of, of master and lordship. Unfortunately, within three centuries or so, three or four centuries, that language be begins to no longer become subversive, but rather legitimating. And so now we actually have Christian lords and Christian masters and a Christian emperor. And now the rhetorical strategy has been completely defeated because now those terms actually have been restored to meaning hierarchy and domination. And so in that sense, if we need to figure out new semantics, new rhetorical strategies, I completely understand that. As long as in abandoning the language of lordship and master, we're not losing the political engagement. So what is the analogy two millennia later to what's the language we can use that can subvert the reign of empire? That's that's a question, again, both anarchists and Christians have to uh, have to figure out. So again, language matters, um, but we can't become frozen by by semantics. So when the New Testament talks about lordship, it is not talking about the kind of lordship that Caesar represented. It is talking about its opposite. This rhetorical strategy is rooted in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew movement was a slave walkout narrated in Exodus. It was a slave walkout of, of Egypt. And the symbol for this movement of freed slaves was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a little mobile suitcase, a little mo mobile chest that went around with the people and in that chest was the Ten Commandments, meaning the covenant. This is who we are. This is what we try to do. And sitting on top of that chest was a throne, 
a chair, which was meant to be a throne. But the symbolism of that throne was that it was an empty throne. And that was early Israel's way of saying, we have no king. Pharaoh is not our king. Nebuchadnezzar is not our king. Our king is Yahweh, and this throne is empty. And that was a very powerful symbolism. A throne, right, that's conventional symbolism, but an empty throne, meaning that belong that kind of authority only belongs to God. That was a subversive uh, idea, but it within several centuries, it became the subversive symbolism was subverted by actual Israelite kings now sitting in that throne. And so now that symbolism doesn't work anymore. Same thing happened under the Constantinian arrangement with Christianity. So the, the challenge for us is to learn from those historic traditions and to to figure out what it, what are our symbols of resistance to the to the dominant theme. So so we could 20 years ago we could say an anarchist often did say you know we are a global movement we're we're a, a global people's movement. But globalization itself is a little bit of a problem problematic term because it's been uh, so thoroughly colonized by capitalists. Um, so can we use that term anymore? I don't know. These are, the, these are the problems of semantics that we have. It's great channels, and thank you for a really good answer to, to the question. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of theological perspectives on radicalism, and I'm sure that we will talk a little bit about what you just said also. Uh, but Jonathan, do you want to continue? Yes, uh, I think it actually ties in quite neatly to the points that you just raised as well, uh, because the next question we wanted to ask is how can faith and theology be a radicalizing force? And I think in particular, I think it's really interesting that you raised this issue with with um, the generational shift that something that has been challenging to power can actually reinforce power as time moves on. In light of that, how can faith and theology be uh, re-radicalizing forces that shift us back to the political or the challenging? Right. Once again, it's important to uh, understand the origins of words. When we say we want to be radical, what do we mean? Does that mean a certain fashion statement? Does that mean a certain political vogue what, what what really does that mean? And uh, I, I prefer to understand the invitation to radicalism as an invitation to go to the roots of of both what is wrong and what is what is necessary. The term radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root. And so to be a radical is to explore the roots of things. Now, for, for our understanding, that means two things. It means that we need to look at the roots of oppression and violence. And not just the symptoms. So we're we're trying to find the causes, the root causes of uh, injustice and the uh, root causes of human alienation. So we're not just putting band-aids on things, but actually trying to heal the deep wounds that these things uh, inflict on us personally and politically. So to be a radical means to not settle for surface analysis or surface response. To not settle for cosmetic, superficial kinds of uh, understandings or initiatives, but rather to keep probing deeper all the time. But it also means going to the roots of a tradition of resistance, a tradition of healing, a tradition of justice. And I think that's particularly important for young postmodern anarchists because there's a tendency in postmodernity to just kind of think, well, our generation is, we're just going to kind of invent stuff and not apprentice oneself to an older tradition. Uh, and in that sense, therefore, it, it ends up being a lot of superstructural posing with uh, cool new language or cool new looks uh, or cool new rituals, but not anything that's going terribly deep. Uh, I believe that, and this is where Christian faith has a lot to offer to anarchist leanings. Is our political culture really going deep? And what deep tradition is it rooted in? Or is it only rooted in kind of our own best thinking or who we've been reading lately kind of thing? I think what we're up against is ancient. It's very contemporary, but it's also very ancient. Uh, and therefore, we need 
we need resources and tools that are also very ancient. So we we give a lot of time and energy in our work to inviting uh, each other to apprentice to older, wiser traditions of resistance. So, for example, we try to figure out what that means in American history. What does it mean to apprentice to the Southern freedom struggle of the 1950s and 60s in this country that was led by African Americans who were struggling against American apartheid? Have we really apprenticed ourselves to that tradition? Or are we so smug and presumptuous to think that we don't need, that there's nothing to learn from those old activists, that was then, this is now. What did uh, Ella Baker and Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis have to teach us, Fannie Lou Hamer, about long-term struggle and sacrifice in their efforts to resist American racism? And then, of course, we can go back deeper than that. We can go back to the to 19th century movements, Right? We, we have a lot to learn from the 19th century anarchists, Proudhon and Kropotkin and people like that. What do we have to learn from uh, 16th century radical movements such as the Anabaptists uh, and the Radical Reformation? What do we have to learn from uh, medieval movements such as the Franciscans and Waldensians? What do we have to learn from late Roman Empire movements such as the Benedictine movement as a movement of resistance um, and cultural repudiation of empire? And, and back and back and back. So to what extent are we going to the roots of our resistance tradition? That's why scripture is important to us, because it is the record of resistance movements that date back two and three thousand years. Imperfect like we are imperfect, but nevertheless far deeper and wiser than we will ever be. So, th so that's what radicalism means. It, it, if radicalism means we're trying to go to the roots, then I think Christianity and theology as the discipline of reflecting critically on these traditions has a lot to offer to anarchism, which oftentimes is rather unrooted and untethered in anything older than the latest movement. And of course, this also means practices of spirituality and uh, sustainability and conflict resolution and uh, the kinds of things that are needed for long-term social struggle and which often are lacking in one-dimensional political anarchism which is why movements tend to rise and fall apart and rise and fall apart because they don't have that sense of rootedness and maturity. That's the single most important way in which I think uh, a Christian faith can contribute to an anarchist orientation is by offering a culture of rootedness that is bigger than we are and older and deeper than we are, uh, which is desperately needed because of the corrosive nature of the imperial society that we are interacting with every single day. Mm, of course. Then uh, one can also say that uh, maybe the goal of uh, a movement maybe isn't is not to last forever. I can really so see your point. It's it is crucial that a group can stick together and cooperate uh, as long so they they can can actually achieve some of their goals. But it can also be tricky you talk a lot about uh, how uh, radicalization through this uh, going to the roots uh, mentality can be uh, something that uh, both the church and the anarchist movement need to learn and and listen and start to practice from but maybe i i think it's hard because um, the position of a christian person in an anarchist mo movement is now i only talk uh, from my own experience if you speak in terms of uh, contributing of uh, one's christian faith and uh, to try to take that into an anarchist movement it's, it's hard because um, it can be a hard uh, place to be and uh, because of all the things the church has done all the history uh, how, ca how can uh, what is the contribution of from christian faiths uh, to the anarchist barricades can one do that yeah great Great question. This was a question that I was taking up uh, just last week. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, working mm -hmm. with um, uh, anarchist activists who have been resisting the Nazis and the so-called alt-right who uh, took over that town last summer and uh, had that very dramatic um, demonstration on August 12th last year that killed a young woman and and the Nazis, you know, have decided that Charlottesville, Virginia is going to be their, their place to make their stand. And so there's been actually weekly skirmishes between Nazis and the Klan, 
Ku Klux Klan, and anti-racism activists, many of whom are anarchists. So I went out there to, to work with these folks for a day, and, and what I found was a community that was really beat up, divided internally, um, mutually suspicious, worn out, um, fatigued, uncertain, angry, disillusioned. That's real, right? I mean, you can have a heroic moment at the barricades, and sometimes that heroic moment works, and sometimes it doesn't. That is, sometimes it actually causes things to change, and sometimes it's ignored or crushed. But life is more than the barricades. And the question is, what do you do the day after the barricade? What do you do with the victims of the barricade? So anarchists tend, tend to be pretty good in, the, in strategizing the heroic um, barricade, but not too good um, at the day before and day after question. And that's where I think that, that is a point of engagement for Christians, that Christians are in this for the long haul, not just for the short spectacle. And we're, we're in it as holistic people, not just as political beings. And that's where we can bring chaplaincy. We can bring a sense of the whole person. What, what do you do when the same person who's been a, a great leader on the barricades is also a sexual predator in the movement? Who's, who's going to deal with that? Um, what do you do with you know, the young couple who's very committed to the movement but has just had a child who has Down syndrome? You know, how, how Christians can can help the barricades is by saying this is about all of life, uh, not just the barricade moment. It's about how we eat. It's about how we care for one another. It's about how we prepare. It's about how we mourn. Uh, it's about how we deal with loss. It's, it's about how we interact with the adversaries. And frankly, the anarchist movement is, still has very narrow bandwidth when it comes to a lot of those questions. Uh, and I think that Christian folk can engage at that level. Is it easy? No, it's not. And I, Alice, I'm very empathetic because, as I said in my narrative of my own journey, the first 20 years of my life I worked outside of the churches with secular movements. And I know very well the inhospitality of those movements to um, to people of faith. And I understand uh, to some extent why. But I also understand that that's part of the wound, that's part of the impoverishment of social movements, is that they are reactive to experiences of oppressive religion to the extent to which they throw out the notion of spirituality altogether. That's, mm. that's changed now. That's changing, at least in the U.S. There's much more openness now in secular circles to spirituality, but there's still very much of an anti-Christian hangover. And, you know, that is what it is. The church mm -hmm. has earned it. <laughs> the church has earned yeah. that, that sort of bad press. But that doesn't mean that we can't just demonstrate with our lives a different way of being Christian. Well, maybe there is an answer to the question in, in what you said, because if uh, you speak of um, how Christians uh, have a long and deep-rooted tradition of uh, these uh, moments in between the barricades, and maybe that is a humble way of both teaching in a, in a practic very practical way the anarchist movement about, uh, or I don't, I don't know if teach is a good word, but doing these things and, and make a good influence mm -hmm. in a humble way of just these practices is the contribution and yeah. that is a very non-confrontive way of spreading uh, the kingdom of God. Right. I think I think uh, we need to, I, I think we need to show a more holistic faith and maybe some people will see it and and be attracted to that. That's actually the only kind of evangelism that ever really works anyway is demonstrating it in our bodies, in our communities. Talking people into it, no, not so much. That's not so interesting. Um, we, don't, we don't need to rehash those debates, but we certainly can offer a way of life that hopefully would, would be attractive. But uh, if I can add to that, I think we also need that for, for ourselves, like as churches or Christian movements or Christian anarchist movements, just to practice that kind of holistic faith with ourselves or for ourselves in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why in the second half of my life, I've put more attention into trying to shape these demonstration projects, because I realize at the end of the day, that's that's the only thing that that matters and that is sustainable is how we live this out in real time, in real places, in real bodies. So I agree. Even though it seems like we agree of the great, great importance of the in-between period between the great battles and the heroic mo moments and the barricades, 
it's still so tempting to ask questions about Christians on barricades. So I will do that and say something about violence. And it's a little bit too simple just to ask if Christian people can do violent things. Is it a sin, etc.? But so that is maybe not the question. But participating in maybe if you cooperate with, say, a violent anarchist group that has maybe a violent strategy you know, fighting against Nazi petashing, something that destroying something uh, that is bad for the environment or like any violent strategy. Doing that as a Christian, uh, doing or maybe uh, the Christian group that, you know, goes in and sabotage something in the name of religion. Um, how can we think of that? Is violence ever an option? Is it different with the people, property? Can we how do we think about this? Yeah, well, that's a that's a very live question for our friends in Charlottesville and elsewhere. It's always been a live question for minority communities struggling against racist or class violence. So, so it's 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 a live question and one that people get pretty excited about. In uh, taking up that question last week in Charlottesville, I just tried to remind people that the question is never we should never reduce the question to essentialism. That is, you know, our job is to be essentially nonviolent in the face of violence because the, the truth is we live in violent systems. We participate in violent structures every day. So it's never a question of essential violence or essential nonviolence. It's always a question of how do we reduce the sum total of violence in a given situation? What can we do to mitigate uh, or reduce violence? And once you ask the question in that way, then it becomes uh, a more interesting question, but it also becomes a m more difficult question to answer. Uh, that is, if one takes up a gun or takes up a stick or punches somebody in the face, how is that possibly reducing the sum total of violence in a given situation? Isn't that actually only playing in to the dynamic of violence that spirals? So the question is, how do we discipline our tactics so that in, in every instance, they are endeavoring to reduce the sum total of violence. Now, there are those who would say that in the case of Nazis showing up in a public park uh, and threatening people with racist behavior, that sometimes if you flash a gun, it will deter people from doing harm. And that's actually true in certain circumstances. It's, it was certainly true with certain Nazis who didn't expect for the counter-protesters to uh, have guns. They thought they would be the only ones to have guns. Um, and in some cases, that was a deterrent. But in other cases, it was encouragement to use guns to solve the issue. Um, moreover, what does it mean that we're appealing to the power of the gun because isn't that actually the deeper roots of the problem is the logic of the gun, both symbolically and substantively? So these are the kinds of debates we need to have. I am of the strong opinion that doing physical violence to people never advances the cause of violent reduction. But we have to acknowledge that there are people who see it differently, and sometimes we're going to have to work with these folks. And what does that mean, um, that we're working with people who see it differently? These are live questions on the barricades and, and questions that we Christians need to to have really wrestled through. Having said that, let me also say, give you a story which I think is illustrative about what Christians can do on the barricades. In 2001, there were um, a number of anti-globalization protests in uh, around the world, uh, and one of them took place in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was made up of a wide spectrum of people, but there was, there, there was a strong presence of anarchists, including black bloc anarchists, and there was nonviolent civil disobedience, and a bunch of people were taken to jail. And uh, it w they went around in jail, and they, they talked to each other and introduced themselves. And it turned out that the, the people in jail who had the most experience on how to do jail time were Christians. There were people coming out of the Catholic worker movement. They'd been to jail before. Mm -hmm. They knew how to do jail time. They knew about the jail system from the inside out because they'd been doing this for years. And most of the anarchists had never been to jail. And so suddenly the Christians were helping the anarchists figure out how to do jail time. Um, when, one, when one looks at the history, again, Sweden 
is very different, but in our history here in the U.S., the people who have been on the front lines disproportionately have been Christian. Historically, the people who have gone to jail, the people who have been beat up, the people who have been witnessing for justice all the way back through the abolitionist movement of the 19th century, uh, women's suffrage movement. Many, many of these folks were Christians and who have that experience. And so that continues to be the case today. What does it mean for us to bring the depth of a tradition and experience into actual skirmishes on the streets. I think the reality, not, not the coffee shop philosophizing about how Christianity sucks, but the reality on the ground when it comes crunch time, who's going to have the spiritual resources and the political perspective to sustain struggle? Christians have been an important part of the mix, and I think you know that's worth uh, remembering. I should also say further that Christians have been on the forefront uh, in this country, in, in my country, of um, experiments with property destruction as a symbolic way of expressing resistance. As you may have heard, we have dear friends who are in jail right now down in Georgia uh, for an action done a little more than a month ago uh, at the Kings Bay Trident uh, submarine nuclear base in which they did a symbolic hammering of sores into plowshares. This has been a tradition of property destruction, which some people see as violent, symbolic destruction of a missile or an airplane or a submarine. And uh, and that's a, that's a lively debate in our movement. I tend to think that uh, nonviolence does not rule out property destruction because I don't see property as sacred, but I think it has to be done very carefully and in a spiritually grounded way, which is which is why mostly the people doing this work, th these kinds of actions for the last 40 years have been Christians. And now that includes not only dismantling weapons of mass destruction, but there are more and more people doing um, destruction of pipelines, oil pipelines, gas pipelines in the eco-justice movement. And once again, most of the people doing that so-called sabotage work are Christians. Who, who have a very considered perspective and experience about this as a form of nonviolent direct action. So it's just, in the real world, it's just silly for anarchists not to be in conversation with radical Christians. Thank you for that answer. It just sticks with me, your uh, speaking of the Charlottesville protests, just the thought of being in a demonstration uh, where people, have, people actually have guns. It's just uh, got to me how... That would never be a scenario in Sweden. People would have knives, maybe, but never a gun. That yeah. is, of course, the police have guns, and every, and we forget about that. But the demonstration people on either side, yeah, uh, just, well, just well, crazy. Yeah, it is, and that's just uh, an indication of how profoundly dysfunctional American society is. That guns are so symbolically and substantively important um, as a way of projecting power but you know it's the wild wild west out here everybody's got guns um which <laughs> which is perhaps the best reason why we should repudiate the gun but again that's uh that's a question that we have to take up in context yep and the question that many anarchists uh, do not agree of you have been listening to the bart cast produced by bartimaeus cooperative ministries to find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>